0: days like this when we get to have that tangible reminder of what Jesus has done for us through communion. Um, let's stand and, and let's read our text in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23. This was Paul writing to the Corinthians, reminding them of stuff they already knew, um, but had lost sight of the centrality of, of uh, God's purpose in all of this. In remembrance of me, for as often as you drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God, I just ask that you would make your word alive to our hearts today. Help us to remember what Jesus did for us, not just in our minds, but with our life. That we would heart and soul commit to being participants in the death the suffering, the resurrection, and the glory of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would draw us into that, that you would enable us to see what you've done for us and what you're calling us to, how you're calling us to respond to what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, so Paul is writing a reminder of what the Lord's Supper is about, what this commemoration of the death of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus is about. And he he says that the Lord on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And this is a significant phrase because it was on the very night that that Jesus was going to be de- betrayed that he took this bread into his hand. He knew full well what was going to come that night. He knew that his disciples, his closest friends, were going to abandon him at best. And at worst, they were going to betray him to enemies who wanted to kill him. He knew he was going to suffer unspeakable horrors physically as he was falsely accused and beaten, beaten to a place beyond recognition where he wouldn't even look human anymore anymore. And that he was going to shoulder the weight of the sins of the entire world that night. And he was going to take it to the cross where he was going to die a death of a criminal. A death that God himself had said was cursed. The death of the cross. And with all of that in full view, he took bread in his hands and he gave thanks. And he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. And I would, like, I would like to know what his thanksgiving sounded like that night. As he took that bread in his hand and he knew, this, this is my body, which is going to be broken tonight. How do you thank God for the brokenness that is your own body? And the disciples were sitting there not fully understanding what he was making reference to. Because every time he talked to them about his death and the suffering he was going to experience, it was just like it would go over the top of their head. They didn't understand that the Christ, the anointed one from God, would subject himself to that kind of thing, that kind of suffering. But maybe they remembered his words where he said that unless you eat my flesh... And drink my blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Maybe they remembered that as he said, this is my body which is broken for you. This is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time you eat this bread, every time you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Why did he give us a tangible reminder of what he has done for us? It's because we forget, right? And we don't, no, we don't forget the facts. None of us forget the fact that Jesus died. We, all, we, we can recall that to mind whenever we want. We know that he died on the cross. We know that he suffered. But we forget in the way that we commit our lives to, to what that calls for, to the kind of response that requires from us. We so easily become spectators who have forgotten the real implications of remembering His sacrificial love and the suffering that it required of Him. And when we remember, then we enter into His death and we become participants of it instead of spectators looking on. It becomes... Our own, our own experience. And Paul told the Corinthians, every time you do this, every time you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death. You're showing it forth. You're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Why did Jesus suffer? Why didn't he just come and just, you know, undergo a clean execution, maybe beheading or whatever? Why did he come to earth and suffer for us? Hebrews has some insight into that. Hebrews chapter 2 says, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So we see Jesus who is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He knew his suffering Would lead to subsequent glory. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers. So He knew that He needed to be made perfect through suffering. What does that mean? Was Jesus somehow less than perfect? Did he have some kind of sin in his life that needed to be um, that needed to be dealt with through suffering that needed to be sanctified out of him? No, we know that 's obviously not the case. The gospel is clear that Jesus was sinless he was without sin and yet he suffered yet it was god's will to subject him to suffering so that the founder of our salvation would be made perfect through that suffering. Look at it more as. God knew that Jesus was going to be the the sacrifice that would establish our salvation. And he knew that for that sacrifice to be the perfect kind of sacrifice, that Jesus would need to be subjected to suffering. That's why Isaiah 53 says, after a a gory description of what Jesus was going to go through, being beaten, being so... so, uh, Beaten that he was beyond human recognition. It says, yet it was the will of God to crush him. Because he knew that that was the perfect kind of sacrifice that we needed to establish the salvation that he's calling us into. Should we expect anything less for ourselves? Should we expect to be able to just stand off to the side as spectators? Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. See, God wanted a forerunner to our salvation. He wanted someone who would not only pay the price of death, but who would come and show us how to live. Show us how to live a life of sacrifice and death. Uh, First, Peter talks about this a lot, too. Peter was writing to the dispersed Christians who were suffering a lot of things because of their faith. A lot of them had lost their homes. A lot of them had been displaced. Um, A lot of them were misunderstood by their their people. They had been rejected. And so he wrote to them a lot about the reasons for, for their suffering. And he told them, This is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you... When you sin, you are beaten for it and you endure. But when you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered... He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness.
1: His wounds,
0: you have been healed. Did you hear that? By his suffering, we have been healed. His suffering brings healing to us. And in chapter 3, he tells them, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. His suffering was a means of bringing us to God. And so now he's calling us to be participants in his death and his suffering. Not as onlookers, but as people who embrace the calling to live like he lived. Because Jesus suffered to give us an example of how we also ought to follow in His steps, and I think this com- this this concept is very difficult for us to understand as pampered Western Christians. We've we've had it very easy, but for Christians who live in places where there's a lot of persecution, where following Christ literally means you leave everything behind, you're willing to to sacrifice everything. This is this is just. Common knowledge that Jesus suffered for us so that we would follow in his steps. In chapter 4, Peter tells them, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer For human passions, but for the will of God. So arm yourself with this way of thinking. Now, armor is something that you you put on. You don't put it on when you're in the middle of a fight. You put it on in preparation for conflict. You put it on in in anticipation of what you're going to face. You place that armor on yourself. And he's saying, you need to arm yourself with this way of thinking. Because if you don't, you're going to be susceptible to the attacks that come. When this suffering comes... When God calls you to be participants in the suffering of Christ, it's going to catch you off guard if you're not prepared, if you're not armed with this way of thinking. Because whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This doesn't mean that if you suffer something physical that, that now you can no longer ever sin. But it does mean that if you have the kind of commitment that... Leads you to follow Christ through suffering, that's the kind of commitment that makes a clean break with sin. Because he says, in the, t- the time past is sufficient. We've spent enough time out there in our previous life sinning. We don't need to live in that anymore. We're going to make a clean break with that. And we're going to say, Jesus, I'm willing to follow you, even if that means following you through physical suffering the way that you suffered. And I want to be clear, I'm not talking about a kind of suffering that somehow makes atonement for our sin. That would be absurd. And the gospel is clear that the suffering and death of Jesus was sufficient to pay for our sin. And yet, Jesus calls us to follow him in the way that he suffered to live that same kind of life of self-denial, death to ourselves... And following him through suffering. When we commit to follow him. In his suffering. We have made a break from sin. Further down in chapter 4. Peter says. Do not be surprised. At the fiery trial. When it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far. As. As you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when the glory is revealed. Why did he say, don't be surprised when trials come? Because we are surprised. When we face something that's difficult, when God calls us to walk through suffering, we're almost always surprised by it. And we're like, wow, this is so unfair, and why is this happening to me? And we begin to question. But he's saying, prepare your minds, prepare yourself With this way of thinking, don't be surprised when fiery trials come your way, because this is what God has called you to. And rejoice insofar as, and that word there means, to the degree that you share Christ's sufferings, you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, it seems to me that the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, before Jesus left, they did not have a very clear understanding of, of the call of Christ to suffer with him. But after he left, it's almost shocking the degree to which they understood and embraced that calling to suffer. That calling to, to participate in Christ's death. Not just through mental assent, but in the way they lived. And I, and I want to look at just a couple of ways that we see this. Um, In in Acts chapter 14, it says they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This was the message that the apostles were giving to the disciples of Christ. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 5, we see where uh, Peter and the other apostles had been told not to preach the gospel and they went back out. And and preached anyway because they couldn't help themselves but to speak the things that they had seen and heard. And it says that when the chief priests and the scribes, they called the apostles back and they, they, they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go again. And when they went out from the presence of the council, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name they had seen. Such a close-up of the way Jesus had suffered, the way he had subjected himself willingly to misunderstanding and to false accusations and to physical humiliation and suffering. They had seen that so close-up, and they loved him so much that when it came to them, when it was their turn, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to participate in that. That sounds pretty different from Just taking a piece of bread, you know, once a quarter and just kind of remembering what Jesus did back there. This is a call to be participants in his death. A call to die to ourselves and to participate in the death of Jesus so that we can experience the subsequent glory. You remember the story of uh, Paul and Silas. When they were in Philippi, in Acts chapter 16, there's a story there of where they were sharing the gospel in Philippi. And this, this young girl, a slave girl, was following them for a couple of days. She followed them around and she was saying that these men have a word from God, listen to them. And she kept you know, calling out. But Paul um after a couple of days of this he was grieved in his spirit he turned and he rebuked the the evil spirit that was speaking through her and immediately it came out she was delivered from her demon possession but when her her owners saw that the the fortune telling business that they had going because of her demon possession was gone that their hope of gain was lost They were furious and they took Paul and Silas and they drugged them over to the to the magistrates and they said, listen to the accusation. They said, these men being Jews, teach us customs and and things that are not lawful for us as Romans to receive and practice. Now, you remember somewhere else where where Paul um, was was accused as a Jew. You remember what he did? He, he claimed his Roman citizenship card, right? He said, you have to give me due process as a Roman citizen. He could have done the same thing here, but for some reason he didn't. And it says that the magistrates had them, had Paul and Silas beaten severely with rods. And after inflicting many blows on them, they, they sent them to prison and they ordered that they would be securely bound in prison. So they threw them into the inner cell and they fastened their feet in stocks in the inner cell of the jail in Philippi. And at midnight, Paul and Silas were in there singing praises to God. Why did they go through that? They were Romans. It was unlawful for the magistrates to have them beaten and thrown into to the prison. It was unconstitutional. And yet, they subjected themselves to this suffering for some reason. Was it because they saw that the gospel was going to be more effectively brought into Philippi through their suffering than it would be if they would bring it as Roman citizens who are exempt from this kind of persecution? And we know the rest of the story, how that God sent a big earthquake and the... the. Um, Prison was shaken and all the prisoners chains fell off and the jailer came in and he he was like, oh, no, the, the prisoners are gone. He was about to kill himself. And Paul and Silas said, don't kill yourself. We're all here. And he and all his household came to faith in Jesus Christ because of what they had seen, because of the suffering that they had seen. Paul and Silas endure with patience and joy. Something moved this jail. He may not have heard the message of the gospel yet, but he came in there and said, guys, what do I need to do to be saved? Obviously, you guys have something that I need. Wasn't it because of the persecution and the suffering that Paul and Silas were willing to subject themselves to? Because they literally became participants in the suffering and death of Christ in the way that they lived. And later, Paul writes to the Philippians, and he writes to them quite a bit about suffering. He says in in Philippians chapter 1, he says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. There's that mental assent. You should not only sit around on Sundays taking communion and thinking about what Jesus did for you. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You see what he did there? He could point back to what they had seen him go through and say, this is what you're called to in Christ. It's not only a mental ascent. It's not just believing here, but it's living steadfast through the tribulation that you saw in me and that you're experiencing now. And that's why he could say to the Philippians as well, that I may know him. I've counted everything loss, all things that were gained to me. I counted loss that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his, his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, being made conformable to his death. Guys, you see this in my life, that my life is being made conformable to the death Of Christ through the sufferings that I've experienced so that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And in Colossians he wrote that he rejoiced in his suffering for the sake of the church because in his flesh he was filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. What did he mean by that? Was he saying that somehow the sacrifice of Jesus was not enough and he needed to suffer as well? So to to atone for sin by no means read Romans and it's very clear that the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient to atone for all humanity's sin. But he was saying the gospel is going to go out by means of suffering. It was an agreement with the calling to the followers of Jesus to participate in his death till the fullness of the kingdom of Christ comes. Is His calling for us any less? Sometimes, sometimes I think that we've experienced so little of what it means to really enter into the death of Jesus. That when the time comes when we're confronted with, with the choice to deny Him or to suffer... that we won't be prepared for, it. that we'll be caught off guard. And God is saying, arm yourselves with this way of thinking, that the way Jesus established salvation, through suffering and through death, he's calling us to follow him in those same steps. Worship team, if you guys would just want to come up here, and maybe sing highly exalted while, uh, while the rest of us come up. Richard Wormbrand said this, You remember, he spent a lot of of years in prison, um, suffering for his faith. And he said, I have accepted this proposal. Christians are meant to have the same vocation as their king, that of cross-bearers. It is this conscience of a high calling and of partnership with Jesus, which brings gladness and tribulation, which makes Christians enter prisons... For their faith with the joy of a bridegroom entering the bridal room. I, can't even, I can hardly even wrap my mind around that. that. He's saying this calling to participate in the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory that we'll experience, that's what makes Christians enter prison for their faith. With the same joy that a bridegroom has when he enters the bridal room, when he's presented with his bride saying because we look to what Jesus is bringing to us the reward of his suffering that we will participate in if we participate in his suffering and death and in Revelation 5 we see where the, the saints and the angels are lifting up Jesus and they're saying worthy is the lamb who was slain the glory that Jesus receives throughout eternity can be traced back to an actual event to the suffering that He went through on earth. An event event of the greatest injustice in history where the perfect Son of God, the One who created everything, subjected Himself to suffering and death because of His love for us, of God emptying Himself of all His glory, And taking the form of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And the result of that suffering is immeasurable glory and honor. And today he's inviting us to, to come and to take the bread in our hands. And as we break it, we acknowledge that this is his body. But we're not just giving mental assent to what he did back there. We're saying... God, I'm willing to enter into this covenant of death. Death to myself. Death to my own desires. Because I see the glory that is coming. And if we lose sight of the glory that is coming as a result of that death, we won't be willing to take the bread in our hands. We won't be willing to say... God, I'm entering into this covenant of death with you. But when we see the glory and when we see Jesus, the way that he suffered for us, we can do it gladly. As participants in a covenant of death that leads to eternal glory. And Paul said that that exceeding weight of glory that's being worked out through the sufferings in this life, it's not even worthy to be compared There's no comparison between the glory that is coming and and the suffering, these light afflictions that we we experience now. So let's just come, come forward here and we're going to take the bread and we're going to drink from the cup of the blood of Jesus as we remember what he has done for us.